0: Thank collection is invariably associated with John Rowe Martin. Yet, other portions of his collection are equally rich. Mahé Jackson papers, the Manella papers, the photographic collections, and sheet music collections are all of extraordinary value. One of these wonderful collections is his assemblage of material relating to Scott Joplin. It is perhaps the heart of John Rowe, Mr. Russell's collection. It begins chronologically with an unusual group of cave walks by Joplin and his early contemporaries. It, it includes practically a complete set of the original and early Joplin editions published by <coughs> John Stark and others. According to his letter of last instruction written in 1982, He was particularly pleased with his collection of documents. The bulk of it was acquired between 1941 and 1948. Much of it was acquired directly from the publisher's door. Another portion was acquired from Roy Cundruth's widow. Roy Cundruth was the great promoter and protector of Johnny O'Rourke in the last years of his life. And the final portion came from the widow of Scott Johnny. We are very pleased to have Scott Joplin's own copy of Trinidad, and Alabama. Also, instead of last instruction, he noted that in the 1970s, he and Richard Jackson, then curator of American music at the New York Public Library's Lincoln Center performing arts Division, had extensive discussions as this remarkable image. By twist of fate, Mr. Jackson, a New Orleans native, returned to New Orleans, and worked as a volunteer here at the collection to inventory and catalog Mr. Russell's job collection. Tonight, we celebrate the legacy of Scott Joplin, composer, pianist, educator, and visionary. Since his death in 1917, his work has made into the fabric of pop culture every child who has taken can all those with an interest in the roots of jazz, and every fan of Paul Williams <coughs> and Robert Redfrey. <laughs> roots are community of Jonathan's ragtime works, particularly the Maple Leaf rags and entertainment. Over the past 24 years, more and more people have become lovers of his great work, The Ocremination, which we present excerpts of tonight. In 1911, the acclaimed American musical journal, the American Musicians and art journal, observed, quote, that John had created an entirely new phase of musical art and has produced a thoroughly American art, dealing with a typical American subject. Though there are jaunty rank songs and dances, from this is not a rag opera or a folk opera, but as Joplin intended, a serious American grand opera, with an extensive overture, instrumental preludes, formal arias with regarding vocal writing, recites, and elaborate ensembles. Today we know that Jocelyn's legacy is enormous and set the standard for popular music of his time. The combination of classical music, the musical atmosphere present around his hometown of Texarkana, including the work songs, gospel and spiritual and dance music, and Joplin's natural sense of lyricism and syncopation has decided its contributing significantly to the invention of a new star, which blends African-American musical styles with European forms and melodies. Ragtime right became popular in the 1890s, the dawn of the Jim Crow era, and fostered an appreciation of African-American musical tradition and styles among European Americans at a time when African Americans shook up the recognition of their contributions as being essential to the framework of American culture. His work indeed paved the way for later black artists. Was originally published by Joplin in 1911, and the only performance it received in his lifetime was a concert read through in 1915 at the Lincoln Theatre in Harlem, which he paid for and provided the company for. That performance was not well received, and the work was forgotten until 1970, when the score was rediscovered. Due to the resurgence in popularity of this ragtime works, interest grew and it was finally given a full stage. The world premiere was given on January 28, 1972 as a joint production of Morehouse College's Music Department and the Language Symphony Orchestra, directed by legendary choreographer Catherine Duncan and conducted by Robert Shaw. Its first opera production was presented by the Houston Grand Opera in 1975, with Kathleen Baden saying the title of the title role. A few comments about this particular uh, performance. We have selected certain scenes to be performed this evening. Those vocal numbers that are not presented are represented by improvisations based upon themes from the admitted vocal numbers. It may seem curious that we have a young Frenchman and graduate of the Paris Conservatory do those improvisations. Why would we do that? The answer is very simple. Today, the students in that advanced series of improvisation at that famed conservatory must be able to improvise in the style of Scott Junkie. It is, indeed, testimony to legacy and to parties. We would ask that you please silence all cell phones. The use of sound recordings is prohibited as well as flashcards. We will have one very great pause at the end of Act 1, and it's for purely technical reasons, and we ask that you remain seated. Thank you.
1: The scene of the opera is laid on a plantation, surrounded by a dense forest, somewhere in the state of Arkansas, northeast of the town of Texarkana, and three or four miles from the Red River, and takes place between 1866 and 1884. The plantation has been left in the care of Ned, a servant. All of the Negroes, but Ned and his wife, Monisha, were superstitious and believed in conjuring. Ned and Monisha had no children, and they often prayed that their cabin home might one day be brightened by a child. That would be home and a companion for Monisha when Ned was away from home. They had dreams too of educating their child so that when it grew up, it could teach the people around them to aspire to something better and higher than superstition and conjuring. The prayers of Naed and Manisha were answered in a remarkable manner. One morning in the middle of September, 1866, Monisha found a baby under a tree that grew in front of her cabin, a girl about two days old. Monisha at first gave the child her own name, but when the child was three years old, she was so fond of playing under the tree where she was found that Monisha gave her the name Tree Monisha. When Tremanesha was seven years old, Manisha arranged with a white family that she would do their washing and ironing, and Ned would chop their wood if the lady of the house would give Trimanisha an education, the schoolhouse being too far away for the child to attend. The lady consented, and as a result, Trimanishu was the only educated person in the neighborhood, the other children being still in ignorance on account of their inability to travel so far to school. Zazzitrik, Luddock, and Simon, three very old men, earned their living by going about the neighborhood practicing conjuring selling little luck bags and rabbit's feet and confirming the people in their superstition. The strain of music you're about to hear is the principal strain in the opera and represents the happiness of the people when they feel free from the conjurers and their spells of superstition. Begins in September 1884. Trimanisha, being 18 years old, now starts upon her career as a teacher and leader. Act one, hear the overture. A plantation run by free blacks, Manisha is approached by a witch doctor, Zad Citric, who wants to sell her a bag of luck. Her husband, Ned, and daughter, Trimanisha, chase the man away. Remus tells him how Trimanisha, the only educated person of our race, taught him to read, to write, and to reject superstition. Because return from the fields and there is a dance. starts to make herself a wreath out of the leaves of the tree that stands in front of her cabin, Manisha stops her. She tells her that she is not really her daughter, that she and Ned found her one morning underneath that tree. Tremonitia tells her that she still considers them her parents, and she goes with Lucy into the forest to gather leaves from a different tree, while the rest of the corn huskers are led in a prayer meeting by a parson all talk. Lucy returns alone, however, and tells them that the conjurers have kidnapped Tremonitia. The men run off to rescue her. Remus after stopping to disguise himself with a scarecrow from the field, follows them. Act two takes place in the afternoon the same day. At their meeting in the woods, the conjurers decide that they must punish Trimanisha for trying to turn the people away from superstition by pushing her into a wasp's nest. After passing a belly of bears, they arrive at the wasp's nest. However, The superstitious conjurers are frightened away by Remus in his scarecrow disguise, whom they take to be the devil. As they head home, Remus and Tremonitia pass a group of cotton pickers, finishing work and heading for dinner, who decide to take their rest as a male quartet sings, We Will Rest a While. Tremonesia and Remus stopped to greet the con pickers, who then hear the end of the workday signal as a diner has blowed the horn. Manisha are worried about their daughter, but soon she and Remus arrive. They are followed by the corn husking boys who have captured two of the conjurors, Zadzitrik, and Ludot. The people are ready to beat them for kidnapping Trimanisha, but she tells them to release the conjurors instead. They obey, if reluctantly. As Remus tells them all, that two wrongs do not make a right. At Trumanisha's request, they pardon the two conjurors and all shake hands. The community asks Trumanisha to be its leader. Everyone joins in a dance in celebration as we close our presentation with a real slow drag.